This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. I'm going to hand over straight away to Christy Dienart to introduce the panellists today. Thank you. One of the comments uh, that Katie said in the last panel, uh, you mentioned this latest incarnation of VR, and and I think it's it's sometimes important to note that we have been through many hype cycles in VR, and some of you may recall the big hype cycles of the 1990s, in which it did actually attract a lot of vendors and a lot of users at the time. But the thing is uh, that Density actually dissipates if people are disappointed. Uh, And they were at the time. Expectations weren't being met. And the area was described as things like um, VR is the art of, um, of man and information coming together. Uh, now, um, with the current version of VR, we have not just men, but we have women that are actually working in the area, um, um, in not just here today across all of the panels, but in the industry across the board. And it is not just about information. In the 1990s, it was often spoken about in engineering terms, and that was quite predominant. And any voices that tried to talk about art were actually um, pushed to the fringes. Now, instead, when we're talking about VR, we are talking about entertainment. We are talking about art. We are talking about connection. We are talking about humanity. And that's one of the reasons why it is actually working now. It is actually meeting expectations. We have great equipment. We have great projects that are actually happening. Um, And with that, uh, it's good to know that it will not supersede film. People will still be going to the cinema and actually experiencing TV because they are very different experiences. The reasons why we are attracted to VR and to TV and to cinema are different. They satisfy different moods and different motivations. So what is it that's different about VR? Why are people being drawn to it? And what uh, can you as creators um, do to really nurture and blossom this area? So this is what we're looking at today in this panel with this great selection of speakers here. So I'd like you to to welcome uh, Dan, Oscar, Nathan, and Michael. (laughs) Um, So let's just start off. so some people would uh, know a bit about what you do, and we we'll delve in that more when we go into your projects. But let's just start off with what you, what other areas have you been working in prior to VR, and what drove you to VR? I'll start with you, Dan. Um, I suppose at, at my company, Sandpit, we use a whole bunch of different tools to tell stories, and some of them are digital. Um, we do a bit of stuff with VR. Um, some of them are kind of tactile, physical things that we build. Um, sometimes it's in theatre, um, so VR is just kind of one ingredient in the toolkit. What attracted you to VR? Um, uh, initially, we um, we worked with um, Grumpy Sailor and uh, Google's Creative Lab um, in Sydney to uh, create a project that could use VR technology, but not in the way you'd expect. Um, I don't. Did you go into this much in the previous? So repeating that. Um, yeah. So we created this kind of ghosty thing that um, I kind of uh, 
is VR, but it, with kind of live actors in a way, so just using the sound, really, um, which has now turned into a proper VR experience, which is down there at the moment. Yeah. Um, so it's, 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 it's an external invite to explore an area using the skills that you already have. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Oscar. Hello, I'm Oscar. I'm creative director at Vertov. Um, I'm a visual artist. Uh, from Chile, from South America. That's the variety of English that you're listening to. <laughs> I have other varieties, but I'm going to try Spanish this time. I'm working in performance art and, uh, and combining it with digital media in the most lo-fi manner possible was my, my, my kind of starving artist uh, <laughs> incarnation of my, in my career. And what attracted me the most about VR is what has been um, mentioned as one of the downfalls or one of the, the low sides of it, which is the isolation. But I, I think that finding that moment in which you are with yourself and, and revealing your thought process to yourself, kind of the time that you spend with a book, that moment, that isolation, that bubble that happens with VR is something that interests me uh, heaps. And your first work was all about you know, people being able to experience a very intimate that's right. Yeah. So my first work in VR was a, um, a documentary I made about my father, who was an army officer and part of the military dictatorship in Chile. So I made a, a very intimate letter to my father, and I wanted to put the user in that space, in the, the space of that conversation, uh, in a story that is not finished. I don't have a statement about it other than the question it poses. I saying, I don't, I'm, I, I'm not highlighting how hard was his position in, in those years, but more of um, what do I feel about it? You know, I don't really have a defined statement between the person that I know and love, my father, and the public persona, which is this guy in uniform that is part of a, a different history, if you, if you take it from a larger perspective. So I, w I was dealing with that, with that question myself, and I wanted to pose the question to the user and, and let them go through the same um, steps. Great, thank you. Nathan. Hi there, I'm Nathan Anderson from uh, Start VR. So I think, um, like probably a few people in the room, I'm a bit of a refugee of the transmedia sort of multi-platform industry, if you like. So I think that last five years I spent a lot of time looking at how storytelling can be integrated with interaction and sort of game mechanics and how you can still have a, an emotionally resonant experience through a narrative arc, but you can actually have some ability to control or participate in that story as well. And I think... You know, VR, when I started looking at it more intently in the last couple of years, would seem to me like the logical next step of, of applying those kind of principles. So I started working off in film and TV as a, as a runner and an AD back in the 90s. And so it was very, very much in that traditional mode there. Um, but then the last 15 years spent in digital. So, so it's, and, and, you know, for the last five years trying to combine those things together as well. So um, we're a relatively new company. We're only, we started middle of last year, so we're, we're a dedicated VR team now. We don't do any other work, but but me, my journey is kind of representative of most of the founding partners in that we've come from different areas and we're trying to, to seek new challenges around, you know, how to tell stories or how to engage people interactively. And I think VR is is that kind of frontier that I think all of us probably in the room are attracted to because it seems like there's there's new things to find here and new new ways to, to engage audiences as well. So it's, um I guess, attracted to the unknown as much as anything, but yeah. It's a kind of it feels like a logical step for me as well in my career. Why why dedicate uh, your company to to VR? Well, 
we, you know, and there's all of the reports about how big the VR industry is going to be in the next couple of years, you know, and, and I guess they, they vary from, as we heard before, 120 billion to, you know, on the low side, it's maybe 40 billion. I think from a commercial point of view, that's coming from a base of almost nothing. So if you can really go after that industry, you can stand to rise with that wave as well. But also the all the founding team, you know, and everyone at, at the business were very passionate believers about what VR can do for not only storytelling but our society and how it's you know it's a it's a 10-year commitment to a new communication platform and computing platform so and it's also that vr is is now finally as you talked about here commercially i think uh, a lot of people talk about ar and there's a lot of really interesting examples of ar but i think mainstream ar head-mounted ar is probably still you know three to five years away maybe at some point in the future we'll start doing more mixed reality experiences where vr you know in- incorporates real world elements but right now vr is kind of the opportunity but it's sort of that that ability to totally replace your view and take you somewhere i think that's quite magical when you get it right and everyone that's had that vr experience where they feel like they're somewhere else all you do is just do that once and you kind of, you know, you think, wow, I want to sort of try and do that again or try and do that in different ways as well. But yeah, so that's enough reason to say let's just do VR and not worry about anything else and see if we can make some progress in that way as well. Yeah, yeah great. Thank you. Over to you, Michael. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah, so my name is Michael and um, my background's in theatre and uh, so that's sort of where I started, doing immersive theatre experiences. I mean, like tiny immersive theater experiences with like three people um <laughs> and then moved into film and i've been doing that for 10 years and very recently made a documentary which i'm not a documentarian but it was i guess it was simple because it was a 360 video so you know let's do a documentary and yeah that's sort of where i'm at um and working on more interactive elements now with the next project uh, <clears throat> which is more uh, sort of immersive uh, theatrical principles um yeah a little bit more real time i guess yeah that's yep, great. That's so let's delve into a little bit more about your projects and and some of the sort of the techniques and and things that you have used there. Um, Michael, you've got um, an image that we can, oh, we yeah. can draw up. Yeah, let's so, show an image. Yeah, and what's the name of the project? Uh, so the, yeah, that, 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 uh, <laughs> the documentary is called Jaffrey, and I think I've, I, I recognise a few faces in the audience, and I think a few of you have seen it. It's a little documentary about this man who stands on the corner of Flinders Street Station every Friday. Um, and yeah, it's a little portrait. It's not an activist piece by any means. It's a really um, intimate piece about the man behind the signs. So um, that's just the last frame of the, of the, of the film, um, of the 360 film, where uh, most of it is really intimate moments where you see him in his, um, you know, his backyard and his, in his bedroom, which I think is the next image. Um, and that's basically sort of the piece. You, you, you sort of get a sense of who he is in, in his space in a, in a very intimate way. And, um, and I think that was maybe what was more interesting than, uh, and more powerful than doing a, a film, uh, cause it was originally a film. And yeah, get a sense of, of, of who he is and where he lives and allowing the audience to, to find meaning in, in the little things that he has in his room, uh, whether it be a book or, a, or the Australian flag that's waving on, on, the, on the top. Uh, yeah, so that's sort of the choice of why we, we, why did it in VR. Um, yeah, so what, what point did you, did you switch from a film to um, VR? I guess maybe two weeks after just sort of developing, talking to him, because uh, we started with um, with an audio interview that we recorded. And uh, 
and I don't know, it just felt like an activist piece. It, everything felt like it was forced because um, you've seen uh, you know, we've seen so many of these videos where you know you see um, that have this sort of activist tone, and I don't know. I feel like it, it would have got lost in, in the wilderness of of those types of videos. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas to understand who a man is and understand who an Australian is um, in his own environment is a lot more personal, I think. So that's, was that the question? Yeah, well, I okay. mean, touching on what you were saying before about the pers- um, the, the, the viewer, the user, the player having to find meaning. Mm. Yeah, so rather than it being being told to them, they're going to have to look around and, and do that. Yeah, there's a, there's a great moment actually um, with an audience member who came to see this um, and afterwards he took off the headset and he was like, man, the book, like I've probably, probably, you probably all heard this story. <laughs> I feel like I've told the story 10 times. Um, and but sorry, I'll get back to the story. So he takes off the headset and he says like the, the, the book, like it was so nice, it, was, it meant so much to have that book on the floor. It really, it really gave the piece meaning in that scene. And I didn't put the book there. It was just a book in his bedroom. And the viewer found all this meaning and, and it drew his attention. And, and he came away f- with some, his own personal experience in that scene. Um, he brought his own baggage, his own, you know, what that book meant to him. And, and it transformed the experience in a sense. And I had no control over that. It, uh, he brought, <clears throat> excuse me, he probably wasn't even listening to the narration at that point, And that's great. Mm. Um, so it's, yeah, that level of, as, as um, Katie mentioned earlier, letting go and just... Uh, then the audience find their own meaning and building the experience in the world around that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's that's sort of what I got from this experience. Did you still have goals in terms of you know as a documentary? <clears throat> is it is it about getting people to act about something, or is it informing them about something? I mean, this is a bit a bit of a personal sketch, but did you have? you know, those sort of documentary activism goals in mind? Or? No, it was never, never wanted to make an activist piece yeah. um, because the man himself, himself is so interesting. And the, the film ends with him holding a sign at the middle of Flinders and you're sort of standing there looking at, looking at him. So no matter what you do, it's going to become an activist piece because of the strong imagery of Jaffrey standing in the middle of Flinders. Yeah. So it was sort of, it was important not to talk about what he does and why he does it because I think the image of him doing it is a lot more powerful than than him explaining it to us. So you see him, you see who he is, how he lives, you see him as a everyday person, and and then at the end you see the message. And I feel like that message relates to everything you saw before <laughs> and, and the meaning you found in his experience. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So Dan then if you know doing the overlap of someone walking into a space and they're observing something that's coming on and they're taking meaning from that you know let's let's sort of explore some of Dan's photos from from the your ghost work um yeah this this was really interesting to kind of um uh, and probably a counterpoint to what you've just talked about because there's kind of these five points that surround you there are five performers that surround you It'd be interesting to know a bit more about that just having kind of one person with all this other space around them as well mm-hmm. um but yeah in kind of developing this work we um and kind of kicking off talk, talking about narrative earlier we actually had this monster kind of toilet roll of a script that had six six scripts all running at the same time in columns so kind of printed out and had it, had it running um <laughs> along the ground um uh yeah so you can kind of turn around and tune into the inner thoughts of one of these people. Um, but in writing that as well, um, there is actually a relationship between all of the points in all of the script. So if you are listening to one person and then turn to another, thematically there's kind of a link between those two things, so it's not completely jarring. So it did turn into this kind of crazy house of cards 
script where if you wanted to make one change that had repercussions for the whole thing mm. um, did do you fade out the sound like what do you do how do you get the shift yeah so sound sound is a kind of a massive part of this as well and it, it was really interesting kind of rehearsing this as a show as well because it was me and um, co-director sam uh, standing in the middle of the room wearing a ghost sheet <laughs> directing actors <laughs> um but um, we did that for three weeks um, and just hearing the raw tracks of the, the inner thoughts um, and then the composers added in the score at that point and the whole thing shifted completely. It, was, it became quite cinematic and, um, and really amazing. And sound design is always a bit scary too because sometimes you expect you know, a sound designer to paint something orange but they go away and paint it green, you know, something completely different. Um, but it, they did such an incredible job. But each of the actors... Um, are in a different kind of time zone. So the the score kind of reflects that time zone as well as you move around. But also beyond that, we had um, uh, we had a stereo system inside the set that had uh, sound that you could hear with your with your ears anyway, beyond tuning into the, the different people. So there was kind of like a bit of a baseline um, that would then sync up to all of the other um, score. Does that make sense? <laughs> it's hard explaining this stuff. Um, but yeah, sound was massively important. Yeah. Uh, so hearing people's thoughts, what inner thoughts aren't interesting? Like how did you have to develop that to actually? It's, it's interesting doing that as well because when you, the way you think isn't really in words a lot of the time, you know. Well, that's maybe personal, but, it, um, you know, sometimes it's kind of more fragmented or more kind of images or um, or sounds that you're kind of um, – that you're remembering um, – but this being a kind of theatrical production, we had to make that consumable for an audience as well. So we had to find this middle ground of kind of um, fragmented language that thought is like, but also in a way that you could kind of follow it as well. So it was meaningful for an audience. Mm. So by having all of these different perspectives, did you have a particular, um, you put, you, did you put aside the whole idea of a particular message and point and create this sort of paradigm where people can come away with any interpretation that they want you know, how was that sort of conceptualized? It's not quite that open. There is a there's a narrative there for you to discover, um, mm-hmm. but there are, um, there, I guess, there are kind of clues that are placed um, in all of the kind of six different uh, soundtracks that you can hear. So there's there's definitely a story <laughs> in there, yeah. um, but it's um, it's complex. Um, so everyone's impression of that story is going to be different. Yeah, great. Okay, thank you. So Oscar. Continuing no. the idea of inner thoughts. Let's <laughs> um, bring Are up. Are there any oh. any other kind of thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> Materialized thoughts. Yes, yes. Uh, but you have a bit. Of, you have a video that Jay will be queuing in a moment, I believe. Can you uh, tell us a bit about. So that video wants to highlight um, the inclusion of the character. This is a, an idea that Katie touched on before. The inclusion of the user as the main character in their narrative capacity. So not just as a a passive uh, receiver, but the one that is activating um, the story itself. Not just in terms of engagement. This is not like to keep them interested in in what the story is about, but actually letting the story unfold and being responsible for the um, interactive triggers in the story. So what you see there is um, two excerpts from Easter Rising, Voice of of a Rebel, uh, which is a story about um, the Easter uprising in 1916 in Ireland that led to the independence of Ireland from the UK. Our main character 
went through the through Easter week and uh, unlike many, he survived because he did one of the, the a set of actions um, of which one of this is one of them is uh, the breaking down of the door that you're doing yourself, right? When you see the, the, the small silhouette, the shadow silhouette in front of the door, there's a small trigger that makes you realize that you are there. Yeah, it's an embodiment of that character. It's a vicarious experience. But that, what that wants to say is you are doing this thing same, the same manner. In the turning forest, you, when the creature approaches you, you see your reflection there. And the reflection re reacts to your head movements and your body movements. Uh, again, trying to tell you, you are here, right? What, this is happening to you in real time. So the things that you do will have a repercussion in the world. This contain, you know, recreated plastic synthetic world. But that said, inside the narrative space, once you say outside, you know, in the civic space, uh, that the environment is paying attention to what we do. So there is a, there is this kind of um, training into being part of a community. And, and saying, you know what, the community is paying attention, or the environment, I mean, community of humans, or the environment as in object-based uh, understanding of the world, it's paying attention to what you do. So pay attention to what you do to them. Yeah, yeah, great. I mean, it's a similar thing in um, in in games. Um, I mean, you know, get games can be in VR as well, but basically people are affected the most by their relationships with NPCs, mm -hmm. you know, by the non-player characters and that. So you're bringing all of these to the fore or even with humans, yeah. Correct. Yeah. Great, thank you. Nathan, um, you have a, a video that Jay will uh, prompt up as well. Do you want to yeah. give us a bit of a prompt, a brief? Um, yeah, so this is a project we launched just recently called VR Noir. It's a pilot episode for a... Uh, a multi or six part series. So I might just play the, the teaser trailer and then I can talk about that afterwards. Yep. So whenever you're ready, Jay. Nice okay. and short. Yeah. Um, so that, that project is available to view if you're interested this afternoon from two to six as well, I think down in the foyer. Um, so yeah, that's a 12 part, well, sorry, 12 minute episode, depending on how you play it, it can run up to 15 minutes as well. So it's an interactive app that you play the role of the detective in. So sometimes you are her and other times you're watching um, what she's doing and how she's going about it. And we did that consciously to try and explore the concepts of character development like you would have in a normal you know, film or TV experience where you're, where you're watching a character. But we also want to do exactly what Oscar was talking about and we've all talked about is that sense of agency and, and, and control that you are part of that story as well. You're not just watching and passively, passively engaging. So we chose VR, I'm sorry, chose film noir as, a, as a, quite a conscious, um, intentional kind of, I guess, reason in, in VR because we wanted to give a very familiar kind of, um, I guess, yeah, sort of established genre for people to go into. So, you know, VR is very kind of unknown at the moment. So we thought if we can take an audience member and they know kind of what to expect in a, in a film noir experience, there's a there's a mystery, there's a, you know, there's some kind of stylization as well. Um, there's crime that that will help in people's, you know, kind of consumption of it. And also because it, it, it has a crime element to it, there's an automatic mystery component, which allow, which is really good for interactivity. So, you know, collecting clues, evidence, you know, um, you know, finding out what happened, that's all very, you know, even if you're looking at a passive, you know, TV experience like an Agatha Christie or some kind of TV show, you're still trying to work out what's happening as the audience member. So I think that that kind of genre helps and lends itself to interactivity. So we, we consciously chose that. And VR Noir is almost like a proof of concept that it's just exploring techniques in VR. It's not, 
you know, it won't necessarily it's you know be the final form where we're getting to. It's just trying to look at concepts of yeah how you can guide the story but still have a story told to you as well. And I think that's the real challenge in VR at the moment. Um, how you can balance that out of giving people control but also allowing them to be taken on a journey and not just kind of have total control over it too. So um, yeah, so I think in that for that reason it's been really quite interesting and, and informative mm -hmm. from our point of view. Um, so as you see, we, we co-produced that with the Australian Film School um, and a VFX company called uh, Frame Set and Match. So we tried to approach it very much like a traditional cinema project in some of the the, the, the way we shot it. So it was very um, sort of photorealistic and live action. We wanted it to feel like a, a film um, but and use sort of high-end compositing and and, um, and sort of VFX components, but also you know, built it in Unity as well. So it is actually, it has spatial sound, it has um, interactive branches as well. So if you choose different paths, you'll have a slightly different experience to, to other people too. So, um, but yeah, it's been a really interesting experience for us having made that. I think, you know, we shot that in March this year. We'd probably do it, totally differently now because the cameras have changed since then as well um but you know and a lot of the methods have changed too but it's sort of what we're finding is good is just these little shorter pilots and projects that can inform you and help you move to that next step as well mm. you've mentioned just a few things that you've been trying to you know to aim to do um what's a what's a, an epiphany you know a big epiphany that comes to mind that you've had during the process yeah i think um I know we sort of talked about this. I don't think this is anything new necessarily, but one thing that when you think about VR filmmaking that's different to more traditional filmmaking is that, that your camera is the audience. So you've got to think of when you're shooting something or when you're using a virtual camera in a, in a 3D or CG set, you've got to think that that's where your audience is viewing it from. And it's not, so it's not about having a window that you're showing someone a world, you're actually taking them into that world. And you have to think consciously about that camera being the audience member. And, in the obvious choice then is to think about the audience being a character as well and, and that they've got some role to play. It doesn't have to be that, but I think that's how you have to start thinking about it. When I started thinking that it's not just, you're not just shooting something, you're actually taking someone somewhere. That's the mm -hmm. kind of, it's not an epiphany, but it was sort of a, a key moment in understanding how to construct these experiences, which is not, which is diff distinctly different to filmmaking in traditional sense, I think. Sure. I don't know if anyone else has comments on that. Michael? So it's this idea, I think this idea of, um, it came after making Jaffrey um, and, and just hearing people talk about the project um, and and because it was a documentary, it wasn't meant to be any theatric, anything sort of theatrical or anything like that. But afterwards realizing that, oh, well, it, it was theatrical, you know, and, and that it's sort of, um, I found my love again for, for theater and, and for performance and for spatial storytelling and to, uh, yeah, to think about space rather than instead of frames. I think right. that was sort of my, my epiphany moment. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Okay. Can I, can I, um, uh, on the epiphany and the character as the, the, the camera as the character. Oh, so many branching things that I'm, I want to say about, <laughs> you know, the metaphor of the camera when we could have chosen as an industry, as a collective, we could have chosen the eye or the, no, the presence. Mm -hmm. Well, we chose camera or someone chose camera. Side note. But the other thing is that it tends to be um, when we write these narratives and if you look at it through the um, hero's journey uh, lens, it seems that the, the shapeshifter seems to be the most appropriate form for this camera. It doesn't have to be like the, 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 the heavily consistent one character or uni or multidimensional character, but that is consistent throughout the piece. Mm. It can change. 
And it could be like sometimes he becomes an omniscient narrator and sometimes he's the main character and then you might be the villain. It can change. So when we talk about the, the camera or the center of the, the presence, uh, the user, as being a character, it can be that, that shifting thing. Mm. Yeah, I think it's interesting. You bring up something there about that we've thought about with, um, well, everyone has dreams as well. And, and a dream state is very similar to a VR experience in that things can change, you know, and, and you know, strange reality can distort. And you, in VR, you kind of feel like you can accept that. And it's almost like what happens in a dream. Sometimes you are yourself. Sometimes you're looking at yourself. You might look at someone and turn away and look back and there's someone else. And in, when you're thinking about a dream back, you think, oh, that's kind of normal. You accept that. And your brain, and, sort of, and there's been some study looking at, the way that the brain is active when you're in VR is similar to a, a REM state of sleep, of, of sleep as well, which is kind of interesting to explore. So I, th I think you're right, Oscar. It's about it can it doesn't have to be rooted to one character all the way through too. And maybe that's an interesting area to start exploring more. Mm -hmm. Even the language that you use when you reflect on a VR experience is so different to film, right? When you talk about an experience, people use language like when I was there, when I was in. And yeah, it, it, it sort of reminds me of when you mentioned dreamlike yeah. states. It sort yeah. of becomes a memory in itself. It becomes, it tricks the brain to thinking that this happened. Yeah. You know, even though you know it hasn't, but the reflection of it feels like it, it existed um, in, in sort of a space. Um, yeah. Dan? Um, <laughs> like we've done this very weird project. Um, I suppose that one of the biggest kind of revelations was just about the level of agency that the audience had in the project to look anywhere they want, to hear anything they wanted, but the level of agency that the performers didn't, <laughs> which is very different from theatre usually when there's a bit of scope to kind of change your performance or, or some nuance within that. But in this experience, all of the um, performers had an in-ear so that they could hear their own thoughts because we kind of realised very quickly that when you think something, you kind of physicalise it a bit as well. You know, if you're telling yourself off, you kind of do that. <laughs> um, so they were really pegged to what they were hearing, um, which was pre-recorded, but also the sound, James probably explained this, but the sound shifted with them. It was kind of keyframe, so if they moved, the sound would move with them. So that had to be really precise. They had to move at exactly the same moment every time. So in the end, it was like a dance in a way. Mm -hmm. It was like that level of kind of precision that they had to repeat every time, whereas the audience had so much more freedom than, than they did in a way. Usually it would be the other way around. Yeah, yeah. Given that VR has a very um, important haptic component to it, I mean, the way that you feel the environment, as synthetic as it could be, it's a major part of how you relate to the, the experience itself. Uh, I'm very excited about seeing how nonverbal communication can happen, how collaboration or competition can happen in such environments in which you have more than one player. And all the, the forces at play in, in those circumstances, like how are you going to, how are you going to, collaborate with people that are in other cultures, in other nations, in other circumstances? Are you going to collaborate or are we going to go competition, which is the gaming way? What's going to happen in those things? And not just delivering uh, content in the frame by means of a talking head, but actually making people connect there. And also things like, um, was it... Um stop talking keep talking don't Nobody explode explodes. yeah 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 you know in those ones it's it's it's, it's, it's not just yeah. collaboration in the yeah. virtual world it's actually collaboration in the real world with with yeah. the virtual world as well so yeah i think though i was talking before tiltbrush are about to release a multiplayer version of that so you can be in tiltbrush together with someone else doing things so 
I think that, yeah, I'd, I'd say in the next 12 months, we'll see a lot more social experiences in VR. And mm. I think to the benefit of VR as well. So that should ha- hopefully that happens. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We are slightly over time, but I will uh, please thank our panelists, uh, Dan, Oscar, Nathan, Michael. All of them would be happy to be contacted by you if you would like. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the Acme website.